If you would turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 27, we're continuing in our series through Matthew's Gospel. As you're turning there, we remember a lot has happened even through chapter 26. In chapter 26, Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples the night before he would be crucified on Good Friday. He instituted the Lord's Supper. And after the Lord's Supper, they went into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, Judas had betrayed the Lord. And the chief priests and the elders had come and arrested Jesus in the garden. And they took Jesus while the rest of the disciples fled to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Jesus is in the midst of being tried before the Sanhedrin, uh, the high Jewish court. That's really the center of the story in 26 and 27. But in the midst of his trial, Matthew's gospel provides for us a couple other trials that are taking place. One of them we've considered at the end of chapter 26, and that was the trial of Peter, where Peter uh, uh, denies the Lord three times. And now we come at the beginning of chapter 27 to another trial, and this is the trial of Judas. It's worth noting that in all four Gospels, when the Gospel writers note the 12 apostles and list all of their names, without exception, Peter always comes first. Makes sense in a lot of ways. He's going to be a leader in the early church in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. Though he denied the Lord, the Lord will reinstate him after the resurrection, and he will be used powerfully in the beginning of the early church. But without exception, Judas is listed last. And always with a comment, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the Lord. Judas Iscariot, the traitor. And here we see the narrative of Judas coming to the end of himself and the end of his physical life. So it's Matthew 27, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's word. When morning came, it is now Good Friday, All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since this is blood money. So they took counsel, and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, who said, quote, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. We certainly have seen through the Passion Week that a number of the stories and narratives that we have considered are fulfillments of a larger purpose. And here we see fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic words from the prophet Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 19 and 
and very likely as well, Zechariah chapter 11. There's, there's a, a larger story that's unfolding here, and we see that again and again. And we certainly do not want to overlook the horrific reality of suicide itself. For any of us who have known someone, a friend, a brother or sister in Christ, a family member who has taken their lives, we know the horror, the tragedy of how that shakes a person uh, to the core, shakes the people around them. Indeed, the uh, statistics on suicide during the COVID season have risen. There is that reality, and we're brought into the psychology and the thinking and the heart of Judas Moore in this text, and I hope we see that. But I want us to step back for a moment and see the structure of how Matthew is put together these chapters. One of the great blessings of preaching through a whole book of the Bible or reading through a whole book at one time is to see how the author, inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit, has constructed uh, the narrative and the texts and how that brings about uh, meaning to us. And we see that very powerfully in chapter 26 and 27. As I noted, Jesus was arrested in chapter 26 there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, before the whole Sanhedrin, and he's being tried. That's really at the center of the plot and the storyline. But right in the midst of Jesus' trial, distinct to Matthew's gospel in 26 and 27, are two subplots that Matthew gives to us. It's not the center of the story. They're kind of subplots. And they come back to back. One is the trial of Peter and his triple denial of the Lord. And then immediately following that, as we've just read in chapter 27, is another trial, and it's that of Judas, and his betrayal, and his regret, and then his suicide, the taking of his own life. And it's by seeing these two men side by side, contrasted that Matthew's provided, that we see emerge this central distinction between the two of these men. And this necessary characteristic that sets the true believer apart from the false believer. You see, Peter and Judas, from the outside, have a whole lot in common. Both of them were called by Christ. Both of them are numbered among the twelve. The the twelve apostles with a capital A. Both of them were commissioned by Christ back in chapter 10. They were both given authority to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. Both of them spent three years in full-time ministry at this point with Christ, arm in arm, serving the things of God. Both of them experienced a deep fall into sin. We see both of those here, back to back. Peter denied the Lord three times. Judas betrayed the Lord for his own personal gain. So outwardly, Peter and Judas have a whole lot in common. They both, and this is key, they both feel a sorrow for their sin and their fall. Peter, if you look at the last verse of chapter 26, after the rooster crowed and the words of the Lord came to his mind, what did he do? He went out and wept bitterly. And then what about Judas? In our text in verse 3, we're told he had a change of mind and that he even confessed, I have sinned 
by betraying innocent blood. And yet it's, though they appear to have so much in common, it's what you and I cannot see in the heart of these men that makes all the difference. The grace of God at work in the heart, that is what will distinguish true faith in Peter from counterfeit faith in Judas. And it's that difference that has eternal consequences. Judas has a counterfeit faith. It is an artificial faith. We live in a culture that's full of the artificial and the imitation and the counterfeit. Uh, It's in our food. It's in our clothing. It's in our currency. Uh, There is synthetic leather that has the appearance of genuine leather. There's artificial foods that have the appearance of natural foods. Uh, Just a few days ago, I think on Thursday, one of our daughters came up to me and said, Dad, you've got to try this fruit, this grape. I put it in my mouth and I said, that tastes like cotton candy. It is, she said. Cotton candy grapes. That cannot be real. But I would like some more. (laughs) Many of you are later this week going to be searching for those, I'm sure. And then, of course, counterfeit currency. It looks like real money. In fact, it's estimated that there's tens of millions of dollars in counterfeit currency in circulation throughout the U.S. economy. And the reason the artificial and the counterfeit is so effective is that by all outward appearances, it seems genuine. And that's true of Judas in many ways. He appears to have a true faith. But the scriptures tell us in John 17 and in Acts chapter 1 that Judas was lost. He is the one destined to destruction. Remember Jesus' words in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus prayed, Father, I have kept them all in your name. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. It wasn't sin that prevented Judas from knowing the saving grace of Christ. It wasn't the fact that he betrayed the Lord. It wasn't his greed for silver or gold. Alexander McLaren has said there is is no unpardonable sin, including suicide. That's my addition. There is no unpardonable sin except that of refusing the pardon that avails for all sin. That's the unpardonable sin. It's the refusal, the rejection of the grace and the glory of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Judas felt regret. Judas felt remorse. But what was he lacking? Repentance. Repentance. And I want for us to focus our attention upon that doctrine of repentance. That that which was absent by what we understand in Scripture in the heart of Judas. And we heard the verse read earlier. There is a single verse, I think, sheds light upon this narrative, upon the heart of Judas and Peter and all who would follow. 2 Corinthians 7.10. It's worth turning there. It's worth giving our heart's attention and meditation upon these words. For godly grief, Paul says, 
Godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. That's what distinguished Peter from Judas. It wasn't that one was sinful and one was not, or one felt sorrow for sin and one did not. The difference rests in the kind of sorrow that they had. One's a godly sorrow. The other is a worldly sorrow. One leads to repentance and forgiveness. The other leads to mere regret and death. It's kind of striking. Though Judas, from what we understand in the scriptures, was lost outside of the grace, ultimately, of Christ. Look at what his grief and sorrow led him to do. In verse 3, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he does three things. He has a change in his mind, we're told. He brings back the pieces of silver, and he confesses, I have sinned. That's powerful language. He expresses confession. He seeks to satisfy for his sin by returning the money. But there's something glaringly missing here with Judas. There's no inclination of of desire of turning to the Lord Jesus Christ for his grace and for his mercy, for his restoration. He's simply left in a kind of self-pity. He has remorse, but remorse is not repentance. He feels regret, clearly, but regret is not repentance. Every day, people feel sadness over the consequences of their sin and the pain that sin produces. If you've walked with the Lord for very long at all, or you are not walking with the Lord, you know the effects of sin. I remember as a child around age 10, school-aged child, I had my friend over. We were in the backyard. It was the summertime, and we began making water balloons. One thing led to another. We found ourselves up in uh, our treehouse at our house, and uh, it, it overlooked a road that cars would travel every couple minutes. But cars would travel at 45, 50 miles an hour. Something entered into our mind that we thought, well, we'll start tossing those water balloons at cars. Eventually, we hit a car. And I remember that immediate feeling of thrill and excitement for about three or four seconds. And then that feeling led to another feeling of alarm, a kind of anxiety. And then that alarm and anxiety turned to the feeling of regret. And about ten minutes later, in our neighborhood, that car showed up at our house. And then that regret turned to Fear. Uh, But it was a fear simply that I would be found out. That I I would be discovered in what I had done. My regret and remorse was simply over the consequence of sin. What would happen to me? Repentance is different. Repentance is not the feeling of sorrow that comes from being found out. Judas felt that. 
He felt self-pity. He felt remorse, regret. Philip Hughes says this of Judas. He does not have sorrow because of the heinousness of his sin as a rebellion against God, but sorrow because of the painful and unwelcome consequences of sin. Self is its central point. Self is also the central point of sin. Thus the sorrow of the world manifests itself in self-pity rather than in contrition and a turning to God for his mercy. You know, repentance can kind of be viewed as a hard, cold word. But it's really a word of mercy for us as believers. And it is the first word of the gospel. It's worth noting, the first word and words that Jesus preached were not the word love or the word grace. The gospel is gracious. The gospel is loving. But remember how Jesus began his preaching ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. He said, repent and believe. Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark chapter 1, we're told the same. He began proclaiming the good news and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's not only the first word of the gospel, it's how Jesus ends his earthly ministry as he sends forth his disciples in his farewell to them in Luke 24. It says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said that the Christ must suffer, be raised from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Uh, The word repent that Jesus preached and is often, most often used throughout the New Testament is the word metaneo. And it means to have a change of mind or change of heart. It is to experience a turnaround or turnabout. It's the idea, I was moving in this direction in my life and it's a complete opposite direction. A radical change, a new mindset. It's not a change in mere emotion or a fleeting feeling of remorse. It's a complete change of mindset that leads to a new life course. It's interesting in verse 3 when we're told Judas had a change of mind, a different word is used. It's not a word meaning repentance. It's a word meaning remorse. Remorse is the natural feeling a person has when the wrong they've done produces a negative consequence. But repentance is different. Repentance is a radical change of the heart and the will and what is desired. God gives us a new disposition or inclination in our heart and fills us with a new desire. That's radically different than the feeling of remorse. Uh, Our Westminster Confession has a whole chapter on repentance, and in the shorter catechism it says this, Repentance is a saving grace in which a sinner, in knowing his sin and the mercy of God in Christ, with hatred of his sin, turns from it unto God. Much could be said about repentance, but note two things. First, it is a gift of God, as the catechism rightly points out. It is a saving grace. So this is not something man produces within his own heart, as if by producing repentance... I'm exercising a work that somehow justifies me before Almighty God. It's not a work 
that we produce. It is rather a mark or characteristic that simply defines the believer who has responded to the grace of Christ and who has been regenerated by the Lord and his mercy. This is granted of God. Secondly, repentance not only occurs at the beginning or the time of God's gift of saving faith. It is ongoing. It is an ongoing characteristic of the people of God. This week, uh, many believers will remember and give thanks for the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther in 1517, on All Saints' Eve, October 30th, 31st, he nailed and published those 95 theses or statements. And over the years, a lot has been said about a number of those statements. But one thing that is easily overlooked are his opening statements, his opening words. Luther was laying the axe at the very root of the tree of medieval Catholicism in the Roman church. And he drove home the teaching of repentance. And this is what the opening words are. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying, repent, he intended that the whole life of his believers on earth should be a constant, ongoing Repentance. Luther recognized the teaching of Scripture. The Christian life doesn't merely begin with repentance, but is a life of repentance from start to finish. Quite interesting is the fact that when the Bible was translated into Latin in the late 4th century, the Latin Vulgate, the official version of the Catholic Church, it translated Jesus' words in Matthew 4.17 when Jesus said, repent and believe. The words repent in Latin, they translated into penitentium agit. Do penance. Do penance. Uh, a work or an act that one might do, like praying or fasting, to satisfy for sin. Centuries later, Erasmus translated the Bible into Greek. And guess what word he used in Matthew 4.17? Metaneo. Repent. Recapturing the meaning of what Jesus was after in repentance. Uh, not offering acts to satisfy our own sins, but to have a radical change in the heart and mind, a new disposition of the will. A.W. Tozer said, much of our problem in continuing fellowship with a holy God is that many Christians repent only for what they do rather than for what they are. We not only commit sins, we have that old sinful nature that seeks to creep up and surface and take hold of our hearts that we are to turn away from and turn to the living God. I think the Apostle Paul captures very much the essence of Repentance, a, a turning from and a turning to, when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. He was encouraging them how their faith was taking root in their lives and how testimony was spreading of their faith. And in his encouraging words, he said, Many report concerning you how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God turned to God from idols. And that's the essence of a repentant life. The teaching and the doctrine of repentance may feel like a, 
heavy, weighty, deep theological teaching. And perhaps it is. But it is also deeply practical and relevant. Have you ever lacked in your Christian living a a, a spiritual vitality? Have you ever fell into a kind of complacency that you struggle to get out of? Have you ever struggled in the fight over a particular sin? Or struggled in creating a, a new desire? Or getting over a, the feeling of guilt and shame? If you've walked with the Lord for very long at all, the answer is probably yes to those questions. And the remedy at heart is repentance. Repentance is like the hinges on a door that enables us to open that door, walk through into the life of salvation. Those are granted by God to us by his mercy. And they're necessary for that door to open. The Apostle Peter, as I've mentioned, he knew about what it was to sin and to fall. But he also knew about God's restoring grace and the power of repentance. And he preached in Acts chapter 3, Repent and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's describing really the millennial kingdom, the presence of the Lord, the kingdom that Christ our Lord established and inaugurated. Repent that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Where does times of refreshing and restoration come from? Does it come from a presidential election? Does it come from economic stability? Does it come from the pursuit after personal comforts? It's not what Peter preached. Repent. Repent. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When you look at Matthew 26 and 27, it can leave the reader with a kind of bleak and dark picture. Judas has betrayed the Lord. The chief priests, they've plotted to crucify innocent blood. The disciples have fled the Lord altogether. We have Peter's triple denial. Judas has come to the end of himself. Helpless in where to turn, he takes his own life. And there are times when Christians in the church face a kind of darkness. Uh, We might sense a cloud of darkness amidst a morally, socially, politically divided, divisive nation. We may feel a cloud of darkness from the disruption of COVID and its numerous kinds of effects. You may be feeling a personal kind of darkness in your own life. Remember the words of Isaiah, chapter 60, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people's, But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light. That was a theme of the Reformation. After darkness comes the light. When Judas felt remorse and he felt regret, he considered where to look for hope and for help. Where did he turn? He first turned to the chief priests. In verse 3 and 4, he brought back the silver. He said to them, I have sinned. And what did they respond with? What is that to us? The very men, the very priests 
The ones called to point people to the remedy of God's grace and mercy care nothing for Judas and for his remorse. And then Judas is left merely to look to himself. Judas struggles to get out of his own way. J.C. Ryle says, True faith does not depend merely on the state of man's head, but on the state of his heart. His conscience may be pierced. The man himself may be puzzled and wonder why he doesn't believe. He does not see he's like a child sitting on the lid of his box and wishing to open it, but not considering that his own weight keeps it shut. That was Judas. He looked no further than himself. And his sin condemned him. And he took his own life. Judas is left looking to himself. Where do the chief priests look? They look to the law. It's kind of amazing how quickly the chief priests will dismiss and care so uh, little for Judas, a man suffering from uh, remorse, and then at the same time be so serious about serving the law. Verse 6, taking the pieces of silver, they say, well, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Of course, they probably got the money out of the treasury to pay Judas to betray the Lord. They seek to serve the law, however distorted a view they have of it, and they completely miss ministering to people. So in the midst of sorrow and sin, Judas looks to himself, the chief priests look to the law. The question for us is, is what are we, what are we looking to as the source of our salvation? To what or whom are we looking for times of refreshing? Is true repentance active in our own hearts, a turning from and a turning to the living God? There's a lot of activity that is happening in Matthew 26 and 27 among the Romans, among the chief priests, Pontius Pilate, Peter and Judas. The most important activity, though, is what is happening in the heart of man. What is happening in their hearts? What is happening in our hearts. And you do not have to look far for the grace of God, for the ministry of God's Spirit to refresh us, to grant us repentance, to grant us grace in our time of need. We read those words in our responsive reading from the psalm. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. But, and may this be true for us, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Judas comes to his end. Not only physical death, but we can say spiritual death. But Judas' end is not our end. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of life everlasting granted to us through the saving mercy of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, who shed his blood for us for the remission of sins that we can draw near to him in repentance, turning from sin, turning from idols 
being refreshed by the presence of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, how we thank you for the grace and the gift of repentance, Lord, that you grant to us, that you have called, that you have elected, that, have, that you have called to yourself. And we thank you, Lord, how you have opened the door unto a saving faith and a saving life. We are grateful. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would look within our own heart, that you would pierce it, that you would convict it, and that, Lord, we would be refreshed as a result, that we would recognize that times of restoration come as the people of God repent and call upon you as the one who grants new life through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Do that work, Lord, in us as your people, that we might indeed know those times, those times that characterize your kingdom, times of refreshing from your presence. And as you do that work, O oh Lord, we as your people will respond with worship and with glory for the sake of Christ. For this we pray in his name. Amen.